Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, this is Stephen Lacey, Editor-in-Chief of Green Tech Media. Welcome to Suncast. Now let's talk energy and clean tech. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Oh, hey there. Welcome back to Suncast. So glad you've joined us today for episode 28. And I gotta tell you, today's episode, in so many ways, has been 18 months in the making. I met today's guest way back when I was just recording the first episodes of Suncast and have looked to him as a mentor and sort of spiritual podcast guide longer still. But before we get into that, I'd like to say thank you to those who've been reaching out lately and helping me really curate the voice of Suncast with both feedback as well as recommendations, not just for topics, but also for guests. In particular, a huge shout out to my friend Patricia Tato, devoted Suncast fan who always goes above and beyond. I recently attended a breakfast in Mexico City hosted by an organization Patricia has been spearheading. It's called Mujeres en Energía Renovables México, or MERM by its letters, which is kind of the Mexico equivalent, perhaps, for our women in solar industry, uh, excuse me, women in solar energy or WISE movement here in the U.S. Patricia, thank you so much for being such a positive light in the world and for all your help keeping Suncast relevant, not just in Mexico, but throughout Latin America. As a listener, you can shoot me an email, a LinkedIn, even just pop over to the website. Leave me a quick voicemail right from your smartphone. My email is nico at mysuncast.com. The website is mysuncast.com. Hey, next, there have been a number of you who have expressed a need for more access to financing or capital options in the C&I market. And I wanted to tell you really quickly about a new entrant to the market and a subsequent partner with Suncast, a company called Soul Rates. Soul Rates helps solar installers in the United States provide instant online financing quotes for commercial and industrial customers with projects $100,000 in value and up. To learn more, you can visit www.solrates.com. And if you'd like an invitation code to join the platform, please reach out to me directly. SolRates is currently only offered for U.S.-based projects. Well, today on Suncast, you'll meet Stephen Lacey. No doubt many of you are already familiar with that name, so he may need no introduction, but Stephen is the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media and the host of the extremely popular Green Tech Media podcasts, The Energy Gang and The Interchange. Like many of you, GTM is one of my go-to resources for up-to-date info on the bleeding edge of clean tech, so I'm truly excited to have Stephen on the show today. There's a ton here to unpack and ponder among the topics we've discussed, you'll discover the origins of the Energy Gang podcast, a modified version of Hot or Not, where Stephen opines on topics from distributed storage to SaaS startups in cleantech, the likelihood of a carbon tax, Stephen's views on the impact of the Trump administration on renewables, 
and some of his biggest takeaways from over a decade of clean energy journalism. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. It means so much. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with none other than Stephen Lacey. Well, many of you will likely already be quite familiar with today's guest. Nonetheless, allow me to introduce you to the eponymous Mr. Stephen Lacey, noted energy and environmental editor, not to mention podcaster and host of GTM's popular Energy Gang podcast. He's currently editor-in-chief at Green Tech Media and has been an established writer and editor on clean energy and environmental policy for more than a decade, including at Climate Progress and RenewableEnergyWorld.com. Stephen, it's truly an honor to have you on the show today. Welcome to Suncast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Nico. It's great to talk to both a fellow podcasting geek and energy geek. <laughs> it sure is. And I have to thank you as well. Early on, before I ever launched the show, you know, there's an episode actually that I have where I recorded and you were in the room. You probably didn't know that, but Camillo Pacinani, which is episode three or four of Suncast, we had just met. I don't know if you remember that back at SPI. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I appreciate, you know, on the heels of that, you you kindly recommended Suncast to a number of folks who asked uh, what podcasts to listen to. And of course, I always recommend the energy gang it is in fact one of my staple podcasts when someone asks me what i think they should be listening to well same goes for suncast because there are a lot of people in this space who i don't think have figured out how to talk about these concepts in an accessible way and i think you do that quite nicely on the show thanks man i appreciate that well coming from you i take that as quite a compliment well for those who are unfamiliar i'd love to start out with that topic of the energy gang you know how did it come about i mean you started a podcast with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, themselves noted luminaries in our sector. So, uh, you know, what's the story with Energy Gang, just as a brief intro? Well, I've actually been podcasting since 2006, you know, shortly after iTunes released its first directory of podcasts. Way back when I was at Renewable Energy World, my old boss, Jim Callahan, who's a veteran in the solar space and started up this small news publication, Renewable Energy World, in 1998 said they hired me to be a podcaster. And he said, you know, before anybody really figures this space out, we want to get ahead of it. And so I cut my teeth doing a show for about five years there. Then I moved over to Climate Progress and experimented with audio. And they weren't really into podcasting. So the show there didn't really go anywhere. Um, but we still picked up, um, you know, a decent number of listeners because the the audience there is quite large. Mm -hmm. And then I moved over to GTM and Right after I got there, Jigger Shaw reached out to me, and he had been listening to my old podcast, Inside Renewable Energy. And we both love the GabFest-style podcast, which right. um, was pioneered by the Slate Political GabFest way back in 2005, like the original roundtable of journalists talking about political news. And now it's just a staple in podcasting. Everybody's doing it. So back in 2013, Jigger approached me, and he said, hey, you know, I love this format. I've been thinking about doing this for clean tech and environment, and I know you're a podcaster. Do you want to do this? And I said, absolutely. So GTM, of course, said yes, and we started up the show, and we knew Catherine Hamilton quite well, and we thought, Jigger's the business and finance expert. I'm the journalist who kind of ties it all together, and Catherine's the politics expert, 
and also knows the business quite well because she's, she works with a lot of the businesses and has been in the utility sector and has worked in the VC space. So it all kind of came together. And um, I had been thinking about rolling out a show at GTM for a while, and, and it was actually Jigger who approached me with the idea of the GabFest style. That's, a, that's so cool. Well, I, you know, I get asked this a lot just in general in public. I'm curious, what do you say to people when they ask what your podcast is about? I say it's a weekly digest of the news. We're there to provide a sounding board for people who are trying to look beyond the headlines and understand the forces driving the energy transition, energy politics, and the environmental movement. And we're there to kind of, you know, debate the issues and help people understand what's going on in the news in a pretty engaging way, but also to like use us as a sounding board to disagree or agree with us. Mm -hmm. Maybe they read something and they're kind of looking for someone to help them digest it. I see us as the folks who can help people understand how they feel about the latest trends in energy and clean tech. You wow. know, we're like, we're, you know, we're like arguing around the table and we're trying to figure it all out ourselves. Yeah. And then we then provide that sounding board for other people who can say, oh, this is how they, this is what they think about the news. Now I can sort of form my own opinion. Yeah. And I love that you guys don't always agree. Uh, I mean, in some, in many cases, you don't, you rarely agree on, on certain topics. It's uh yeah, Jigger is known to, to throw many grenades. <laughs> yeah. So after a while, I realized that it made sense to just disagree with whatever he was going to say to make the audio sound good. <laughs> so <laughs> I might go in with a certain thesis and I, and I just realized, well, to make this interesting, maybe we should just disagree anywhere possible. Yeah. And very often I actually agree with what he's saying, but, um, we both have found a way to disagree to make the con the conversation a little bit more interesting. And I find that that's, you know, something that a lot of, um, really good interviewers and, um, conversationalists do. They just find ways to to highlight disagreement in a constructive way. Yeah, on Suncast, I've been—I've uh, actually been meaning to do a lot more pushing back. You know, it's—it's it's easy early on when you're trying to get the show going, to just be uh, uh, agreeing, agreeing, you know, agreeable, and say, "Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that." As opposed to saying, "That sounds like a totally crap answer. Can, well, let's drive down. Let's drill down to what you really believe." Uh, and I appreciate that about the Energy Gang that you guys are so open. Uh, you know, I always kind of turn to the Energy Gang uh, like I do to GTM for real-time info. It sounds like that's how you guys have uh, expressed the nature of the business uh, of the podcast there. From, from behind the scenes perspective, how do you go about planning for the show? Is it, you know, you're the journalist. Do you do all the heavy lifting? Is it kind of equal contribution of the three? It's mostly um, – it mostly comes from my news flow. So I'm reading the news every morning. It's part of my job to just get a sense of – everything that's happening out there because I have to assign articles to reporters mm. and I'm storing things up and figuring out what's going to make for the best conversation. Jigger and Catherine, meanwhile, will pass links along and send ideas. And then I will at the beginning of the week figure out either what's coming. And in this weird political environment, we kind of have a sense of what big changes might be coming, whether it be stripping EPA regulations or, you know, some other executive order. We kind of know what might be coming that week. And so we plan for it. Usually it's just, we record on Thursdays, Monday or Tuesdays. We put together the topics, and um, and then you know that morning I will start preparing show notes and reading through all the links that I sent around. Yeah. I'll give some people a call. You know, for each story, I'll generally make one or two calls to get some good background and um, 
that's usually uh, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, it's, I mean, part part for the course for your uh, your background and your role at GTM. That's a lot of work. It's uh, as we were joking before the show. It's it's a lot of work to actually pull a podcast off. It is for like a half hour, forty five minute podcast. It's twelve hours of work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Most people wouldn't guess that. I, you know, for what it's worth, I, I want to say, uh, hey, if you're out there and you have an idea for either Energy Gang or Suncast, I say it every episode reach out to us. It really is golden. It helps so much when listeners say, hey guys, you should be talking about this, or I'd like to nominate this person to be on your show. Believe it or not, we're genuinely asking for your input. That's almost the nature of the podcast platform and forum itself. Yeah, do it. I mean, we get a lot of our ideas from listeners too, either on Twitter or sending us emails. People People respond to the call, and it's really helpful for us to know what our listeners want us to talk about. So that definitely guides content. So if you are listening to this, send in your ideas because it does help mold the show. Absolutely. Well, apart from being an award-winning journalist and podcaster, you're also now, as I mentioned before, editor-in-chief at Green Tech Media. And before I go any further, congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're sitting literally at the mouth of the funnel, you know, the eye of the hurricane, you might say, of the news and what's next in clean tech. So I thought we'd play a game I often play with my guests called Hot or Not. And I'm going to tailor it to you, Stephen. This is a modified version of Hot or Not since you're not a Latin America expert, but you are, in fact, what I consider a clean tech expert. So as you may be familiar, I'll name a specific topic and you'll spend, I'll say the time that you deem appropriate on whether you think it's hot or not and why. And believe me, uh, there there are some there are spectrums between hot or not, but I'll leave it to you. You ready for it? Yeah, let's do it. I'll try to keep my answers fairly short. <laughs> Very well. Okay, hot or not? Distributed storage. Definitely hot, particularly here in the U.S. Um, by 2018, according to our numbers at GTM Research, we're going to install more distributed behind the meter systems than uh, grid scale in front of the meter systems. And of course, a lot of that is going to be on the commercial scale for demand charge reduction. But increasingly, as you see market rules evolve, um, developers are seeing storage as a way to provide aggregated grid services to provide backup power now that batteries are becoming cheaper and it actually makes sense, um, and to provide un- uninterruptible power supplies, basically. So um, I see it as a very hot market. Absolutely. Excellent. And as I, you know, it's funny, I might have actually bring uh, Stephen back to the show because I think this entire hot or not list is worthy of its own separate show. So we'll go on to number two, Stephen. Electrification of the automobile industry, hot or not? Well, hot as a concept, but I'd say lukewarm when you look at market realities. Hmm. Two years ago, a lot of automakers were planning for a significant ramp up in consumer demand and no one expected oil and gas prices to fall like they have. And so um, demand has been pretty anemic, but at the same time, automakers are investing billions of dollars into research, into artificial intelligence and autonomous vehicles, into electrified fleets. And of course you have Tesla coming out with its Model 3 soon with a record number of uh, people waiting in line for that car. So interest is still high, but consumer adoption is a lot more anemic than people thought. So I'd say lukewarm. Hmm, Very interesting. All right, number three, utility scale solar. And for the purposes of this conversation, we'll call utility scale solar above 20 megawatts. I would say hot. Hmm. Um, 
you know, lukewarm in that the numbers have dropped off and will be lower than they were at, at last year in 2016. And that's because there is this rush to get projects in the, you know, finished before the potential expiration of the investment tax credit. With that said, there are there's a lot of M&A activity because utilities um, are developing their own EPC units and looking for right. bigger and bigger um, portfolios of projects over the next four or five years. You do have mechanisms like PERPA that are driving a lot of activity outside of traditional state level mandates. Um, and you have a lot of voluntary programs, you know, utilities just saying this stuff is cheaper. So let's issue a procurement. Um, they're not, they're not part of PERPA and they're not part of any RPS. They're just utilities saying that they want solar because it's cheaper than the alternative. So I'm, I'm pretty hot on the market, even though growth will be somewhat sluggish over the next two years. We expect it to ramp up significantly in 2018 and 2019. Um, so I'd say hot, lukewarm, but getting hotter. Yeah, I would have expected the answer to be not. So I'm, I appreciate that color. And for those uninitiated in the acronyms thrown around in our industry, PURPA means Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act. So in particular, the United States. And uh, I would uh, perhaps tend to agree on a global scale, especially given the boom that we're seeing in China and uh, the Middle East, that utility scale solar doesn't seem like it's going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, I'll follow the this one hot or not question up with another that I kind of had on the back burner, because I think distributed generation is uh, the ultimate disruptor to the utility model. So what about the utility relationship with distributed generation, hot or not? Oh man, it's so state dependent. I would say hot now. Mm -hmm. Utilities are looking to increasingly partner with distributed energy companies, either because of state mandate, you know, in states like California and New York, and even Minnesota. And in Texas, you're seeing regulators attempt to reformulate the market and create a level playing field for distributed energy providers to work directly with utilities. Okay. Utilities see them as partners, either to aggregate distributed energy systems for grid services or to figure out a way to sell to customers and make money off of each transaction. So there's a lot of uh, friction, particularly around solar net metering, and I don't expect that to go away. Mm -hmm. But the solar industry is being a lot more uh, forward thinking in its approach to rate design and utilities recognize that this stuff is not going away. So there is um, there's a lot of animosity in the relationship, but it is improving simply because both sides recognize they have to work together. So I'd say it's getting hotter. For sure. Well, let's go to the next question, hot or not. How about SolarCity and Vivint style, call them huge national installation and finance companies? I would say not. Definitely a real question about whether the national installation and sales model can actually work. People commonly point to the home improvement and contractor business as an example. There are no there are no national contractors that do home improvement. And that's what solar is. That's what rooftop solar is in the residential space. And so I don't really see a precedent for it. Um, I, I know someone like Jigger is completely, um, you know, he's he's really soured on the idea of a national sales and installation model. He just has long thought that it would not work. I'm holding out because there's um, an issue of scale, and I 
the, because the market is new enough, I don't know that we've proven yet that the national model doesn't work. I think what we've seen is that these companies have tried to scale for scale's sake, and that has caused their financial problems, whether it be Sungevity, which recently filed for bank, bankruptcy protection, mm -hmm. or Solar City, which has had its financial troubles, has seen customer acquisition costs go up, and arguably was acquired by Tesla uh -huh. to mask its financial I was troubles. Gonna, I was going to say, they also filed for bankruptcy protection. It was just privately. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's so true. Right. But yeah. I don't know that I'm willing to wave off the national model. I think there are specific problems associated with these companies that are trying to scale way too quickly. Mm -hmm. um, Sunrun, for example, is doing okay. Yeah. And um, they, you know, they've outsourced a lot of the installation. Right. I think they've found an appropriate balance of um, funneling f finance being a financing partner and funneling finance into local installation partners, which then allows them to branch out into new states potentially because they have these local partners that can help them feel out the market. So right. it's probably the most sustainable of the national models thus far. Yeah, I was thinking as well, a company that's well much newer to the scene than Sunrun being Sonova, also doing remarkably well uh, yep. by, by and expanding into markets where others traditionally haven't found a huge footprint. I mean, one of their biggest markets last year was Puerto Rico. It seems like a no-brainer, but yeah. folks haven't been able to unlock it except Sonova. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned Sungevity. I was going to make a comment on my next Hot or Not. If you didn't, I'm sure you will. So I'll just go ahead and state the topic. Hot or Not, SaaS or software as a service startups in the clean tech industry. I'm going to say not. <laughs> and oh, I will say... Paul is grinding his teeth. <laughs> well, look, there are a lot of great applications for software as a service. So sure. this is a very difficult question to answer because you're right. Uh, and I'm throwing that in there as, a, as the, uh, the, the head of the tail side of the coin. Right. I mean, clearly software is crucial for improving the sales process, um, making businesses more efficient, modeling the grid and figuring out where to approach customers. So in that respect, Software is, of course, hot. But if you look across the clean tech sector, mm -hmm. what you find is that in the efficiency space, in the utility analytics space, generally the companies developing software as a service have failed to gain any meaningful traction. It, the sales cycles, particularly in the utility space, are extremely long. And these companies are operating on a VC time scale very short sales cycles. They're developing product, new product constantly, and utilities are just really slow to adopt. And I think this is the biggest customer uh, across the clean tech sector. And largely, they have proven a very difficult customer. So I would say not because of the struggles that most of the companies that are approaching both utilities and large commercial customers have faced. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think my color there as well is that to the extent that I've seen uh, these startups that are trying to look like SolarCity and Vivint throw SaaS in as a part of their sort of scale model, their proprietary lead generation model, by and large, it's failed. Uh, it's Well, it certainly failed to help them uh, scale to a point where they can grow uh, sustainably. But I, th I think, you know, as a counterpoint, models like Helioscope and sort of new entrants to the SaaS market like Energy Toolbase are certainly proving that they've got a niche in the market uh, yeah. that, where there's a lot of demand. I completely agree with that assessment. There are a lot of really important and niche applications for software. Mm -hmm. Software guides everything that we do, both 
for consumers and for businesses. So the underlying need for better software services is crucial. I think broadly, companies are finding outside of very specific niche applications that the sales they expected are materializing. Yeah. So let's I have one more topic for hot or not. Stephen, what do you think about the likelihood for a nationwide carbon tax in the U.S.? We'll stick with the U.S. Unfortunately, not. Mm. Um, we have heard rumors and actual reporting that there is a real conversation within the White House over whether to support a carbon tax. But Grover Norquist, the anti-tax crusader, has a firm grip on Congress. Wow. And there are a number of lawmakers in the House who have signed Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge. And even if that tax is revenue neutral, so you offset you know, the corporate in income tax or something else, there's no way that Norquist and his legion of anti-tax lawmakers will ever support that. So I think a lot of folks I'm hearing, a lot of Republicans are supportive of the idea of a carbon tax, but it's just politically unpalatable for them to do so. And they don't have demand from constituents either. Yeah. Well, I think we, let's stay. I know this is one of your strong suits uh, and you live right in the beltway there. So let's stick with a, a little bit of uh, energy policy. You, you wrote an incredible article. For those who haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, you wrote on November 9th about Trump's energy policy. You know, and I, I'll just like to point out the advanced energy market, which includes renewables, building efficiency, electric vehicles, energy storage, clean tech, all the things that green tech media follows, is worth $200 billion in the United States. I think folks don't really recognize that that's worth more than the pharmaceutical industry and almost worth as much as this, the consumer electronics industry, uh, according to Advanced Energy Economy. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on momentum of U.S. renewables as uh, seen through the lens of the Trump administration. Is it too strong to be stopped? Uh, what policies could he possibly overturn? You know, is the ITC safe? What are your thoughts on the, the impact of the Trump administration on clean energy? The short answer is that he won't have a significant impact on the momentum that we've seen in clean energy, because as we both know, a lot of the regulatory and policy drivers come on the local and state level, and Trump just doesn't have any influence over those. Mm -hmm. the, obviously, the president has made it very clear that he wants to roll back the clean power plan, which will take many years. Right. That plan was frozen anyway. Uh, the Supreme Court issued a stay. Mm -hmm. um, so you know that plan had been frozen to begin with. And at GTM Research, all of our models for the the growth of storage and the growth of solar don't factor in those big federal policies like the clean power plan. We're mostly factoring in state and local level drivers. And what we see is a continued surge in growth. I think what you, what the Trump administration could potentially do is put the wrong people in as commissioners at the federal energy regulatory commission, mm -hmm. which has increasingly played this very complicated role as wholesale markets and retail markets start to blend together because of the surge of distributed energy. And so you see behind the meter systems, for example, needing to get factored into wholesale market rules because a lot of companies and even utilities now want to aggregate these systems and sell the combined attributes into the wholesale market for capacity services or frequency regulation. And so FERC is, plays a central role in that. Um, just before Trump was elected, they issued an order 
demanding that regional markets create rules to factor in storage, you know, aggregated storage uh, into capacity-based rules. Mm -hmm. So essentially doing the same thing that they did for demand response, giving it an opportunity to compete in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. This could all change. There are a number of folks that are being considered that could potentially come into FERC and rewind some of those rules or just choose not to act on them. It's actually like this really arcane organization that very few people paid attention to. uh, And now a lot of people are keeping their eyes on what will happen at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So that's kind of where I see the biggest impact. Um, When it comes to the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, I have heard a lot of conflicting stories and reports from folks in D.C. about whether or not those will get repealed as part of a tax reform package. Mm -hmm. The likelihood of tax reform actually passing now after the health care reform debacle is lower. And there are a number of people who believe that we're a lot less likely to see any sort of tax reform package after the Republicans failed to um, pass the repeal and replace of Obamacare. Oh, interesting. There are a lot of Republican governors out there and a lot of lawmakers who see the benefit of wind and solar in their states who are secretly very supportive of the ITC and PTC. Oh, yeah. And on balance, from what I've heard from both advocates and people in the policy community, I I don't get the sense that they're going to be in a tax reform package if and when it actually goes forward. Yeah, interesting as well. You know, I had a conversation uh, recently with Chigger where he pointed out that, uh, and he's been a huge voice for this post-Trump uh, election, that by and large, the folks that support renewables are Republican. They are rural. They are uh, folks who value autonomy. And uh, and that just uh, goes against the notion that, uh, the, you know, the, t- the same base that elected the Trump administration would ever support uh, him doing away with the things that allow for that type of state-level autonomy. Yep, I completely agree with that assessment. I don't know about the solar Mm -hmm. statistics, but in the wind industry, 81% of wind projects are installed in Republican districts. Oh my gosh. And that's why you see people like Kansas Governor Sam Brownback, who's a pretty hardcore um, Republican, writing a letter to the president and to lawmakers in Congress saying, don't touch the tax credits and support more R&D in renewable energy because it's creating tens of thousands of jobs in the Midwest. Yeah. So so since there should be uh, some tweets out to Brownback thanking him for his support of the renewable industry. <laughs> I think a lot of folks have have uh, leveraged their support in the industry. They see him as an important ally and you know many other Terry Brown, Terry Branstad in Iowa, and you know, just governors all throughout the Midwest mm-hmm. have long seen the impact of wind. Yeah. And both Republican and Democrat, they highly support this industry. Yeah. So you know, and historically, wind has been the cost leader from a renewables perspective. I mean, outside of hydro, obviously, for driving down the the wholesale cost of of renewables on the grid. But recently, we're seeing historic lows. Uh, from solar winning tenders, not just in the United States, but also throughout Latin America and notably in the Middle East as well. You know, let's focus on the U.S., but I think this has some effects throughout the globe. But what does the grid look like at, let's say, $20 a megawatt hour for solar? What happens to the utilities? <laughs> it's uh, it's a really complicated question. I, I think the more interesting question is, 
what happens to project owners and developers? Mm -hmm. So if, if they're selling solar power into wholesale markets and depressing prices during the time that they're actually generating power, you know, they're very time dependent, then that makes it very difficult for projects to pencil out. And so when you start to see really low or ne even negative pricing, that can spell serious problems for the owners of, of solar projects. Um, I think that's a more interesting question. So what, what is the threshold at which you need to start co-locating storage uh -huh. with solar? And we're already seeing that in California. I mean, there, there's a real need for additional storage because the California independent system operator is curtailing thousands of megawatts of solar because there's just overgeneration at the middle of the day. And right. they need to find a way to shift both utility scale and rooftop generation to their evening peak, which is around six, seven in the evening, far many hours after the peak of actual generation. So to me, it's less about what will happen to utilities. I think utilities will figure out how to partner with this, either setting up their own EPC units and figuring out how to develop projects or um, you know, buying the resource from developers and project owners because it just it beats out any other resource. The real question is what happens to the solar industry business model? Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone quite knows. Yeah, I think there's some lessons learned uh, already uh, evolving from the wind industry in Texas, uh, as you mentioned already, uh, curtailment is causing negative power prices on the market. So uh, it's something that uh, I'll be paying close attention to. It's certainly something that's going to impact, uh, you know, the, the bulk of uh, our listeners for Suncast, which is Latin America, just kind of contemplating how does this affect uh, the the Mexico market and uh, the the all important. Uh, and not yet developed Brazil market, because uh, they're all kind of looking at the U.S. Uh, as a as an analog of how they might think uh, to to approach the infrastructure. Well, right. Well, I'd love to get your your thoughts on the Mexican market because a lot of us were surprised when Solar won so many contracts um, under the first auction after the market reform passed there, and uh, it was quite remarkable to see renewables get so much traction when competing against a variety of different resources. Yes, I was just down uh, in Mexico for the last week. And, you know, I think that not the solar industry at large was a little bit surprised as well. Uh, there was a lot of it's, it's you know, it's very uh, transparent. Well, not it's as transparent as Latin America can be that the solar projects simply won out on price. So one of the very interesting aspects was how aggressive the solar developers were. I think that there's a lot of uh, speculation in the market that, you know, kind of how we looked at some of the US, early U.S. development, that the developers may, in fact, just be uh, forecasting where they expect market prices to be. So there's some uh, there's a gamble in terms of whether or not they'll actually be able to hit their their forecast price in terms of construction cost. In particular, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, there were, you know, there were projects that were bid without even having firm contracts on land. Uh, no, no firm contracts uh, on uh, on uh, equipment, um, and uh, you know, I was, uh, I'll just I'll mention that you know the equipment supply alone. Uh, it, <laughs> having talked to a number of the, of the racking inverter and module manufacturers, the industry at large is kind of looking at this, going, well, someone's got to supply this. 
we all believe that it's going to, in fact, be built. Uh, I spoke with Santiago Barcon, uh, who writes, uh, who owns and writes for Energia Hoy, who believes that all these projects, in fact, will be built. The question is whether or not they will be built without any damages for having built been built late. But none of the uh, equipment suppliers are terribly eager to supply the contract simply because the pricing they're being asked to provide is is far below where market ought to be. So I think there's a clear suggestion that developers are being overly aggressive and then they're pressuring both finance and equipment supply to meet where they believe the market should be. And you know it's yet to be determined if that's the prevailing thought process that will drive project development moving forward. It may, it may also be argued that that has always been the prevailing project development mentality. <laughs> so I do think those projects will get built in Mexico, by and large, uh, you know, the majority, probably 60-70% of those projects will be built on their own merits. And I don't think we're done seeing the lowest prices in the market yet. We have another auction coming up in Mexico. I expect that the prices will be somewhere around or if not slightly below what the last market auction prices were. And we've seen extremely aggressive, even better than Mexico pricing in Argentina. So uh, we'll, we'll see where that market is going. I, I do believe, just as a final note on that, that the utility space for Latin America, I'm much less bullish on it than you might perhaps be for the United States or Middle East. I think that the utility space is about to see its twilight in Latin America and that distributed generation is going to be a massively more productive sector for renewables. Fascinating. Yeah, I'll look to your analysis to see how that plays out. Indeed. When that, that shift actually happens. Yeah, well, we're going to have uh, I have a few folks coming on, particularly to talk about the Mexico market and Santiago being one of those who graciously gave me some time last week. So yeah, stay tuned. I think this is actually a, an interesting example of um, how the media narrative can get carried away and differ from the facts on the ground. This is not news to any of your listeners probably who are um, most likely really in, entrenched in this industry and understand what's going on. But we often hear about these record PPA prices and when you actually look at the economics of the project itself, often they don't pencil out or they're just like super razor thin margins. And there's a question about whether the projects can get built at that PPA price anyway. And so the same goes for like massive solar deployment in China, where you have massive curtailment. Many of the projects that get completed don't even get connected to the grid. Sometimes they're just sitting there waiting for the feed in tariff when the you know regional government or the Chinese development bank actually like wants to issue issue money. There's all these on the ground complexities that get missed in the record breaking narrative. Although it's still a good story, there's a lot more to it. No doubt about it. And again, you know, yet another topic that we could fill an entire podcast about. And, Indeed. Uh, and I just want to thank you for being the first guest to ask me for my opinion and, and to push back and, and, and ensure the audience that I have at least some shred of credibility with with regard to my own sense of knowledge of what's happening in the market. So thank you for that, Stephen. Well, I know you do. Well, um, let's move on to a new session called Lessons Learned. I'm actually adding this as a component to Suncast. So I'll start with you, Stephen. What are some key lessons and takeaways from the most important mentors in your life or career that you'd like to share? You know, the lessons that I've learned are mostly from other journalists who I think do a really good job, um, particularly in energy journalism. Many years ago, Alexis Madrigal, who is now the editor-at-large at Fusion, was a clean tech reporter at Wired magazine. And he was one of the early voices covering 
energy and clean tech. He wrote a book. I can't even remember the name of the title of the book now. I, I did not actually read the book, but I read a lot of his stuff at Wired Magazine and at Atlantic, where he eventually became an editor. And he made the early clean tech transition accessible and understandable. Another writer who I think does a really good job is Dave Roberts at Vox and actually his colleague, Brad Plumer at Vox. They are so skilled at taking extremely complex climate and energy trends and making them accessible for those who may not be following it closely, but readable for those who are thinking about this stuff every day. Hmm. And I find that business to business journalism has largely been very boring to read. And so I try my best to learn from writers who are writing for a more general interest audience so that I can apply those principles to the more complex writing that we might be doing in the B2B space. And I think that's what I picked up most of my career is how to do that and how to keep refining that to make stuff interesting to read. Hmm. Can you give me an example of an article recently or a place where you've applied that? You feel like you applied that well? Well, I'm not writing as much these days because I'm doing a lot more management and editing, but I try to apply that to the articles that you know the writers are sending me. I will say that I apply it as much as possible to the energy gang. And we're doing we're talking to people who are financing projects, who are writing policy, um, working on the regulatory front, people who are so deep in the weeds on this. And what we try to do each week, both in the Energy Gang and the other podcast I do, The Interchange, is to step back a little bit and say, okay, how can we frame this in a way that provides overarching narratives? You have this, I think rolling narratives are really crucial. Um, you have good guys and bad guys and, you know, you're not taking a side, but you're learning how to frame things so that people feel like the topics that you're addressing are part of this really interesting rolling narrative. Yeah. So that's how I'm always thinking about approaching subjects. I'm not trying to get overly wonky, but I'm trying to maintain the complexity so that it's um, both accessible to people who may not be in the business and outside of it. And I try to apply those every week to the show, to the energy gang. And again, understanding that there are rolling narratives and the players involved kind of fit within those narratives. Very good. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, the tie back to energy gang as well. I do the same with Suncast. I really want to bring life to what can otherwise be a dull discussion that maybe has been marginalized, uh, especially given that Latin America as a, as a market kind of gets its it's moment in the sun every maybe every auction that happens as opposed to just being a, considered a legitimate market. So I appreciate the the insight. I'm curious, was the book called uh, Powering the Dream? Is that the Alexis Magical book? Yes, okay, it is. Perfect. I'll link to that in the show notes, and I'll certainly be ordering it on Amazon right now. <laughs> I don't. I, it might be outdated though. Because he wrote it back in, I think, 2007 or 2008. So, so much has changed. Then. Yeah, but it's still great to read these books that uh, are, are sort of cornerstones around uh, intellectual thought on how this market could have evolved. And to, I think there's a lot of insights there. Uh, I mean, Jer Jeremy Leggett has a book, uh, The Carbon War, that uh, has been the cornerstone for a lot of folks even getting into the clean and en clean energy industry. So uh, the notable founder of Solar Century. So I think it's yep. important. I think it's important for us in the industry to know these books exist, to read them, and to be able to speak to them as to as to, to say, hey, you know, 10 years ago, these were some of the prevailing thoughts. They've changed a little bit, but, you know, in some cases, this is nothing new. I appreciate the insight. 
And we're lovers of books on Suncast, so I'm definitely going to link to this one. Well, what are you most excited about now in the area of clean tech business model innovation? I'm into blockchain these days. Wait, wait blockchain and I feel like, like Bitcoin? Yeah, blockchain is in the underlying foundation of Bitcoin. Hmm. Basically, blockchain is just um, a piece of software that provides a ledger for transactions. Okay. It's a distributed way of tracking transactions so that it's impossible to... It's it's very easy to track and impossible to change. Yeah. So basically, every time someone mines a Bitcoin and sells a Bitcoin, it gets logged on this distributed ledger called the blockchain, and everyone across the network can see it at once, and it can't be modified. Um, and so a lot of folks in healthcare and in the industrial sector and in energy are trying to figure out how to apply that concept to their own industries. If you can create a database that's impossible to change that shows every little transaction how do you then use that to track electrons and peer-to-peer energy sales how do you do that to track medical records and make sure that you're you know keeping a a good record of of people's health records how do you do that to the financial sector and create new insurance products or again new peer-to-peer financial transactions that you can then insure so everyone's looking at this it's almost cliche now to talk about blockchain because in the last year it's exploded onto the scene. Right. But I think what we're seeing now is that the conversation kind of reminds me of the early web. You know, we're we're at this phase where people are discovering email for the first time. Mm-hmm. And blockchain is is like email and all the applications layered on top of the the ledger, the blockchain itself haven't even been invented yet. And so we're still early days. I think we're looking at another 5 years before interesting commercialized products get layered on top of this software platform, but everyone recognizes that it exists and that it will happen. The question is what those products are. And so that's why I'm excited about it. Yeah. And, you know, just doing a quick search here, I can see that you are among the advocates around this notion of blockchain for energy. Quote from an article back uh, a year ago on GTM says, we are on the ground floor of one of the most significant transitions in human history. Wait, you, you did an episode on Energy Gang, if I'm not mistaken, on blockchain as well, right? We did. We talked to a guy named Paul Brody of Ernst & Young, who is one of the most articulate people I've ever heard talk about this. The wow. blockchain is actually a pretty simple concept, but when you start applying it to the Internet of Things or energy, it gets really difficult to conceptualize. And he mm. did one of the best jobs I've ever heard describing how exactly you create the software layer and then build the connections on top of it. And so um, I think that was from the spring of last year. Yeah, I think it's March. March. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Wait, is, is Energy Gang still a part of Squared? Is it is it available to the public? Or? Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. so it's available to the public. I'll link to it. I'll find I know you guys host on SoundCloud, so I'll find it there and link to it in the show. Was well, there anything that you remember as one of the biggest takeaways or aha moments uh, in your time as a journalist over the last decade in clean tech or hosting the Energy Gang, perhaps? You know, I'll never forget... When the EEI, that's the Edison Electric Institute, released its report on utility sector disruption in 2013. And that was a seminal moment in this space when the biggest U.S. utility advocacy organization stepped up and said, 
holy smokes, we've got this massive technology change in front of us and it's going to rip apart our business model if we don't learn how to deal with it. Now, their version of dealing with it was a lot of backroom policy maneuvering to try to rip down net metering and work against the business model. But that's since changed a little bit. I will say that that was a tipping point for a lot of people in the US at least when it was pretty clear that everyone had woken up to the complexities and the urgency of the transition. And now, almost four years on, we are seeing all those changes underway. Uh, renewables and efficiency are just destroying new load growth for most utilities around the country. Coal is retiring at record levels. Gas and renewables are filling the gap. Utilities are struggling to figure out how to embrace this stuff and make money off of it. And everything that the utilities predicted back in 2013 is happening yeah. and it's accelerating. And so that moment to me was when a lot of people opened their eyes. Amazing. I'll certainly go, go back and try to find that report. I love to read. And you know, on that point, I'd like to transition. Stephen, I'd like to finish on our, a section we call learning, leadership, and legacy. Stephen, what's the book that you've given away the most and why? I haven't given away a lot of books. I do give away a lot of podcast recommendations. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of interview style podcasts, so I like this podcast. And um, you know, I'm a fan of people like um, Ezra Klein. I think he has a good interview show. Mm -hmm. the, the long form podcast. If you're into writing and figuring out how people tell stories, which I think is crucial for anyone in this industry trying to figure out how to talk about this stuff. Right. The long form podcast is really crucial. Waking up with Sam Harris, who mm -hmm. dives into um, really complex topics ranging from politics to spirituality. Yeah. I, I'm a big audiophile. So, you know, you can ask me for podcast recommendations all day. I will say that one book that has been really influential on me was unsurprisingly this book called Made to Stick by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Right, the Heath And it's, uh, it, I think it came out in 2007. I read it in 2009. But it, it's all about how do you grab people's attention um, during a period of intense distraction when everyone is distracted by everything. How do you figure out how to tell stories um, using the ancient storytelling methods and applying them to modern storytelling techniques um, how, how do you do that effectively? And so obviously that's my job. So it's really important to me, but I think something that's important to everyone who believes in climate action and the importance of clean tech, I, you know, people respond to narratives and yeah. you generally find that policymakers and the media are five to 10 years behind what's actually happening in the energy sector right now. And so the better we can craft stories and explain exactly what's happening on the ground, the more people are going to pay attention to it. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I'll just compliment that with my general affection for the Heath brothers and their books. In particular, a book that uh, had a profound impact on, on me that I would recommend to the audience is a similar book called Switch that they wrote, How to Change. Yes how to change things when change is hard. And I think just the title itself is something that the renewables industry and probably the utilities industry should perk up to, how to change things when change is hard. Because in fact, uh, we're seeing, as you mentioned, there was this huge proclivity for you know nationwide installer type companies trying to figure out if franchises would work, trying to ha figure out 
how do we bundle these securities and sell them scale, only to find out later that it buries some of the largest companies in the industry and some of the others like First Solar want to get out of these contracts after having sort of committed to them. Yep. So, yeah, so I would highly recommend any book that the Heath brothers have written. And thank you for that. Yeah, I totally agree. That's The Switch is also a really good one. Yeah. Perhaps one thing that I'd ask for you, Stephen, is just email me a list, and I'll certainly put it in the show notes, of any podcasts that you think our listeners would find interesting. I've captured a few, Ezra Klein. I also listen to Sam Harris and Waking Up, but I'll happily publish not only the GTM podcasts, which are essential, but anything else that you might find interesting. Okay, great. Well, what one thing do you do consistently, Stephen, that yields the greatest impact or results in your personal or professional life? I will go back to my point earlier, which is to read a lot of other writers who I think are really effective at storytelling and making hard to understand concepts accessible mm. and doing it in a way that bridges the gap between the high, the highly involved and the newly involved people who are just sort of learning the concepts and people who understand them because they work with them day to day. And that is what has failed in business to business journalism because in my opinion, it's overly technical mm -hmm. and we of course in B2B journalism need to be technical. I mean, these are people who are like evaluating very complex deals and they need to understand what's happening within companies and what's happening in terms of regulatory reform and so forth. But you need to do it in a way that's actually engaging. And so I try to borrow from all sorts of other writers, both in and out of energy to try to apply that to the stories that I'm editing and the way I talk about this. And, and also I just listen to a ton of audio too, and try to listen to the best interviewers because people who are really good interviewers help me see things in a completely different way. And being an audiophile, I just try to soak up as much of it as possible and apply it to the way that I talk to people. Um, so you know, I'm just do my best to consume what I would want to be producing, basically. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I've been watching lately a lot of Charlie Rose interviews, and I just love the way he engages. Uh, well, to take iconic folks and, and really draw out very personal stories from them. And similarly, one of the things that got taken as a hobby lately is trying to record the history of my family. And so I found a book that maybe you would find interesting, Stephen. It's called For Our Children's Children. And it really, it gave me a lot of questions for my family as well as for future podcast guests in terms of how to get at the heart of or the essence of a person's story. It is just, it's bundled in this package of how to collect the oral history of family or, or a company for that matter. Uh, so I appreciate that sort of process and your insight there. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up, obviously, you are a, quite a public figure in, in many ways. I suspect that you're pretty active on Twitter, though I am not. How can people find you and engage with you? Definitely Twitter. I think that's where I'm most active. Mm -hmm. So you can just search for me, Stephen Lacey, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-C-E-Y. Um, my Twitter handle is actually dropping the E, so it's mm. S-T-P-H-N-L-A-C-E-Y underscore Lacey. Mm -hmm. um, but you can just search for me and I'm easily findable on Twitter. And then um, my email is a good way to catch me too. If you want to, you know, send me story ideas or oh, yeah, there you go. things I should 
pay attention to. Lacey at greentechmedia.com. And then if the Energy Gang is uh, anywhere you find podcasts. Basically, if you're listening to this podcast, you know how to download a podcast, so you can just search for it. Wonderful. And also, I might mention as well, you had gave a nod to it earlier, but you and Shale have a podcast that has recently come out from under the squared to be public, if, as I understand it, The Interchange. Is that right? Yes, that is something we've been doing for a year now, and it's been behind the paywall. We've occasionally released shows on the Energy Gang feed, but we decided that it was better to make it a public show. And we actually go really deep on one particular topic. And this goes back to what I was saying about making things accessible. We are actually going into some of the most technical white papers, case Mm. studies, projects, financial deals, and trying to understand what makes them tick and, you know, applying those to, I think, the broader narrative about the energy transition. So we are kind of trying to figure out how this global energy transformation is going to unfold. And we're trying to bring people together in a discovery process. Very cool. And who better to do that than you and Shale? <laughs> Thanks. Well, I uh, so I highly, again, recommend uh, not only Energy Gang, but Interchange. Thank you guys for the work that you do to contribute to this to this conversation. Well, let's end today with what I call the bold prediction. Stephen, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking that maybe we haven't talked about yet today where we've covered a broad topic? What's in your crystal ball, Stephen? I would like to tell you that I have something that nobody has ever heard of and that I've you know, got my finger on the pulse of a trend that will take everybody by surprise. But I, you know, I probably am covering stuff that a lot of people, at least in this business, are paying attention to, one of which is offshore wind. And it's kind of a slow-moving, fast-moving trend, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of activity that is underway in New York and Massachusetts. Massachusetts just passed a massive 1,600-megawatt uh, offshore wind target what? last year. New York has auctions underway as part of its reforming the energy vision um, policy agenda. Rhode Island has uh, potential auctions underway. North Carolina, the the Interior Department actually just auctioned off a bunch of lease areas off of the coast of North Carolina. And so developers are coming from all over the world, particularly from Europe, interested in competing for projects. And we expect, you know, project early PPA proposals to come in fairly competitive. And once those do, a lot of people are going to wake up to the fact that offshore wind is going to become an industry here in the U.S. Hard to see after the Cape Wind debacle, but we're now beyond that. And there's a policy infrastructure being put in place to support offshore wind, learning from some of those early lessons that I think will really help give that industry a boost over the next couple of years. Wow, I did not see that one coming. Stephen Lacey, Editor-in-Chief at Green Tech Media. If any of that uh, does, in fact, begin to gather steam, we'll try to cover it here on Suncast. No doubt you'll cover it on Energy Gang. Thank you so much for being a part of our conversation today, sir. Thanks, Nico. I had fun. I did, too. We'll have to have you back sometime. If we can find time on your very busy calendar, sir. I really enjoyed it, and you can hold me to some of those predictions next time around. Absolutely. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at 
mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.